Church, open your Bibles. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And today I'm continuing in the series that I've called uh, Untangled. And I want you to remember, Paul addresses the church in Corinth over five big issues. And, you know, how does he know about anything that's going on at the church? Because he's living right now um, a distance away in Ephesus. They send him a letter telling him, we would like for you to talk to us about certain things. Paul has also had a number of visitors from the church in Corinth that have told him the lay of the land, what's going on in Corinth. So he sends this letter to address some of their needs and to address some of the things that he knows is happening there in the church. And so this has been used by the church in Corinth to untangle some of their problems, and it's been used millions of times around the world over many generations to untangle the problems that they have in their churches, and that is no difference with us today. We're in chapter 9, and you know I'd like to start today by reminding you that America is intoxicated with personal rights. Listen to this quote from Kurt Bruner, author and pastor. Here it is. He says, We've seen a gradual change over the past several decades in our society from emphasizing individual responsibility to emphasizing, he says, almost glorifying individual rights. And I think we can all say that we have seen that shift in our country. It's a far cry from where John F. Kennedy was with us you know, when he was president, and he said the famous words... Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And we seem to have just hit a downward spiral of exploiting and even demanding every right we can possibly eke out of others or eke out of the system. We've been blinded, blinded by so many good times, and we've fallen into the delusion that everything will always get better and that every human desire should be fulfilled. There are ways in which we are are thinking in which everything is in autopilot and that we should have all of everything that we've ever wanted. There is a columnist named Robert Samuelson. I think he's actually retired now. He wrote for the Washington Post and he wrote for Newsweek. And he specialized in writing about the economy. Some of you may recognize his face. He said something I think that is very profound related to this issue of personal rights. He says... We've had a grand vision. We didn't merely expect things to get better. We expected all social problems to be solved. We expected business cycles, economic insecurity, poverty, and racism to end. We expected almost limitless personal freedom and self-fulfillment. For those who couldn't live life to its fullest as a result of, for instance, old age or disability or even bad luck, We expected a generous societal safety net to guarantee decent lives. Here's the the punchline. We blurred the distinction between progress and perfection. We blurred the distinction between progress and perfection. Rights, entitlements, they are mine and I will have them. I will have my share, if not more, of what I'm entitled to and nobody can stop me. In the passage today, Paul is going to do something amazing. Paul freely chooses not to use certain rights. 
That, that's right. That's what's going to happen in the passage today. We're going to read it in just a moment. Paul's going to do something amazing. He's going to say, I have that right, but I choose not to use it. And there are times in which we as Christians should also exercise that ability to say, I know I have that right, but I'm choosing not to use it. No thanks. And we're going to discover when we have the opportunity to exercise that in our Christian lives. We're going to read from chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and I want you to notice in the passage today how many times Paul asks a question. Sixteen times in this passage, he asks a question. Again, a rhetorical question, but he's, he's putting back upon the Corinthians, hey, what about this situation, and what about this situation? And many of the instances here, he's expecting a certain answer because it's a rhetorical question. He doesn't want them to necessarily respond. But see if you can follow along and how he builds this passage. All right, here we are. Chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus? And the answer, of course, he's expecting is, well, of course you have, Paul. Yes, that's abundantly clear. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? The rhetorical question or answer there is nobody. Nobody serves in the military on their own expense. Nobody grows crops like grapes and doesn't eat of that harvest. Nobody has a cow and doesn't drink some of the milk. That's just you know, obvious. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple serve, service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who pro proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any such rights, nor am I writing things, these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this for, uh, of my own will, I have a reward. But if, I not, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. In the passage today, Paul is in a bit of a tussle with the church in Corinth. 
for whatever reason, they are a little bit suspect of his position as an apostle. Do you remember back in week one, we were chatting about what was going on in the church, and you remember that there were rivalries, there were factions that were going on, and people were aligning themselves with individuals that they thought that were most powerful. And so maybe they were aligning themselves with Peter, or aligning themselves with uh, one of the other speakers there, or one of the other people that were there, and they were trying to align themselves with powerful people. Well, Paul was reminding them, hey, we don't follow powerful people. We follow the Lord Jesus, the most powerful at all. And those powerful personalities, they're just servants in the church, so they don't get our devotion. And so the church is struggling with this issue of powerful people. And for whatever reason, Paul may not be coming off as the most powerful guy in the world. He's not measuring up. And so Paul's writing to partially correct that perception of him. Paul is also writing in order to say, I want to talk to you about money, church. And he's saying to them, I am not taking any money from you. I could have taken that money, but I'm not exercising that right. I have come and I've offered the planting of this church and really my planting of the gospel inside of all of you. And I've done that free of charge. And I've done that because I just care about the sharing of the gospel. We all are given certain rights. We're given certain rights by our country. We're given certain rights by maybe our family, our employer, even by God himself. But within all of those rights, when we have them, it doesn't mean that we always use them. It doesn't mean that we have to go and demand that that right that we have or that entitlement should come to us. There are times in which we say, I give that up. How do we recognize those times? That's what this passage is all about. And I want to help you to know when you have the opportunity to say, no, thank you. I give up that freedom. I give up that entitlement. I give up that thing that perhaps uh, I, I, is, is owed me, but I don't need to take advantage of that. There are three instances in this passage today that I li- would like for you to consider. Three instances in which you may choose not to use a personal freedom. All right, here we go. The first instance in which we might not use a personal freedom is when our authority is self-evident. When our authority is self-evident. This is what Paul says. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? Uh, Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. And so Paul is saying, hey, uh, Corinthian church, I may not be an apostle apostle to many, but I should be to you. And I'm an apostle to you because I'm the one that helped come plant the church among you. I'm the one that actually introduced you to the Lord. So if nobody else is, treats me as an apostle, at least you should because of the work that I did among you. Now, maybe they weren't considering him all that because he was not a part of the original 12. You remember that Jesus had 12 original uh, disciples, and all those disciples, uh, less Judas Iscariot, who tubed out there at the end, all became leaders within the church. Paul came to know Christ later. And you remember the story. He's on his way to Damascus in order to persecute believers, to persecute the church. And the Lord meets him uh, miraculously, strikes him to the ground, blinds him, and he ends up uh, having his sight return. At that time, also finds Jesus as his Savior. His main argument, again, is, hey, I brought you faith, so at least I am an apostle to you. Paul is saying something important to all of us. He's saying... His authority is self-evident. 
my authority. I shouldn't even have to convince you of this, he says, because my authority is really self-evident. I don't need to demand my rights from you because my rights are self-evident. They've been given to me by God. And there are times when you don't need to press matters either. When you don't need to jump up and down, you don't need to demand that you be recognized or demand that everybody see your perspective. There are times when you have authority. You have moral authority. You have spiritual authority. You may even have some sort of cultural authority. And it's in those times in which you may simply rest. It's in those times in which you don't have to demand anything. You can simply rest and you can wait. Let me see if I can give you an example of this. It's kind of a fun example that happened this week. Last week, Denise was in the bathroom. It was night. She was getting ready for bed. She said, Brian, come up here. I said, uh, okay. So I go up there, and she says, I hear a buzzing. And I was like, a buzzing? Okay. And I'm like listening as hard as I can, and no buzzing. And I'm kind of thinking, you know. So I'm like, all right, we'll take note of that. Well, the next morning, I get up, and uh, there is a window in our bathroom, and I start looking out the window, and I notice that there's these bees that are kind of buzzing around a little bit by the window. And so I uh, go outside, I get my clothes on, go outside that morning, and I actually get my little binoculars so that I can look up underneath the eaves, and sure enough, there are these bees that are flying in getting underneath kind of where the roof line meets the wall, and they're just flying in right in that space. And I'm like, uh-oh, I, I think maybe we have a problem. So I called a guy, Keith from the Wild Bees Company, came out this week. And uh, Keith stepped right out of the truck, and he stepped up to the side of the house. He goes, yep, you've got a bumblebee colony that's inside the house right there. I'm like, oh, really? Okay. And so he says, uh, can we go inside together? I said, sure, we can go inside. And so we go inside, and he breaks out this infrared camera, and he points it right at the this junction of where the ceiling meets the wall, and he showed a picture of what the hive was doing. I, don't, I wish I had taped that. I wish I had asked him for the picture, but I didn't. But I found one online, and that's about what it looked like right there. Now, he said, Brian you have a couple of decisions here. He said, your decision number one is you can do nothing. He said, uh, bumblebees are not known to be aggressive. He says, I don't think they're really causing any damage in your wall space there. They're just sitting on the top of the insulation. And he said, they're migratory and they will be gone by July. And he said, then you can kind of seal up that crack area. So you can do nothing. He said, the other thing is I could come in. He says, I don't have all the equipment right now. I need some nitrous gas because I would knock them out and I'd move them to one of my hives for, you know, just building, building the hive there and they'd be safe there. So he says, well, what would you like to do? I said, well, I need to ask the boss. And he said, that's probably, probably a good, a good uh, thing to do. Well, I talked to Denise and Denise said, well, makes me a little bit nervous, but okay, we can leave the bees there. But the moment I see a bee in the house, we're calling Keith back. I mean, the moment that that happens. I told several others this story, and Courtney said, yeah, no. Nobody sleeps in this house until the bees are gone. So, you know, you, you all maybe uh, would, would take that a little bit differently. I use that as an example because I had a decision to make, and I knew that my authority was in place. It's my house. I have control ultimately over those bees, 
and I can make a decision on whether or not to do that or not. And I realize that you might all make a different decision than we did, but I had the right to remove them. Now, if it had been wasps, game over, right? Wasps are gone. They're not even getting moved anywhere else. They're just off. I mean, no moss. They're done. We all have this opportunity at times of whether or not to exercise certain rights that we have. And if your authority is very clear, you may have the opportunity to say, I don't need to do that. Perhaps Jesus is our best example of this. Jesus is being arrested, and he tells his disciples, I could, in a moment's notice, call 12 legions of angels, and they would overtake these Romans. It's my authority. I have the authority with the Father to be able to do that. But he chooses not to do that because he's got a higher calling. He's got a calling from the Father that he has destiny with a cross. And so he doesn't choose to use the, uh, the, 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 the right that he has, the even power that he has at that moment in time. When, you're, when your authority is self-evident, you can sometimes choose not to use a right. And you can rest and you can wait and see if you want to do something with that later. But at that moment, you're okay. All right. The second instance in which you can give up a right is when you don't need, perhaps, what others need. You don't need what others need. Uh, verse 4, do we have the right to eat and drink? He's talking about as a, uh, a, a religious worker in the day, and this wasn't just among Christians, but this was among all kinds of, of, of traveling religious workers. Didn't they have the right to stay in the home with somebody else? Didn't they have the right to eat their food? Even Jesus sending his disciples out two by two said, you know, take advantage of the local people who are going to feed you as a result of your work among them. So Paul says, don't we have the right to eat or drink? Don't we have the right to bring along a believing wife? It was common again that the believing wife would come along. She was also cared for in the process. And he says, don't we have the right for that? As do the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So again, he's telling the, the church, we had the right to receive money from you, but we chose not to do it. And he equates himself with Barnabas, and many have conjectured that Barnabas, you remember the story of Barnabas, book of Acts, he sells some land, gives the money to the church. Well, maybe some conjecture, he had other land, and so he's kind of, kind of an okay, wealthy guy, so he doesn't need to take any money from the churches because, well, he, he's, he's self-sufficient in that way. Paul, uh, we know this, is a tent maker. He makes tents as work wherever he travels. He sells those to people and perhaps governmental authorities, and that's the way he makes his living. And Paul chooses to do two things. He's bivocational, meaning that he works one job during the day, and he plants churches and, and helps believers, and the other time that he's not doing that kind of work. And that kind of bivocational work is increasingly uh, popular, not just in our country, but among even missionaries. Many missionaries can't get into certain countries. They won't let in Christian missionaries, but they'll let in people that are like uh, workers in, in, med in med the medical field, maybe computer experts, somebody who wants to teach English as a second language. So these missionaries would come in and be bivocational, working part-time, and then also doing the ministry in the other uh, warp and woof of life. Here's the point. We can give up our rights if we don't need the benefit. We know that others may need that benefit, so we don't condemn them for using that. But if we don't, we can freely say, I'm choosing not to use that right at this time, and I'm letting others you know, have that opportunity, but we won't. 
Let me give you an example of that. It just happened this last year. Many of you know that there was a lot of uh, money that was given out by the federal government to small businesses. I know many restaurants took advantage of that, and they used that money. It was called PPP money, and, you know, it kind of disappeared in, in a quick wave, and then they brought more of it in, in succeeding months onto the scene in order to try to keep small businesses going. There were some churches I know that also qualified for that. We as a church had a conversation about that, and we said, you know, likely we qualify for that. The number of employees we have, the size of our organization fits that. But our elders prayed and said, you know what? We don't believe that we need that money. We uh, may qualify for that, but we don't believe that the church is teetering on a disaster. We're we're not in, in major financial trouble. So we are going to forego that. We are not going to pursue that money. Wasn't wrong if other churches did that. But for us, even though it was a right, we chose not to use that. And the church said, no, thank you. We're not going to take that. Back to, again, the example with Paul. He chose not to take a salary. And now, again, this is a little bit of a pregnant passage for me. I hope that you are not looking down upon me for taking a salary. Because I realize that's, uh, you know, baked within this passage. Paul says that uh, those that work for the gospel have the right to that paycheck. In fact, he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And so he's saying here, for those that are those that work with you, they do have that right to receive payment for that. But not all pastors need that. There are some pastors that don't need that income and they don't take that. Can I give you an example? It's one that I love to tell about. It's Rick Warren from Saddleback Church in LA and he's been at that church for a long time. Many of you know that he's a very famous and accomplished author and speaker and you know pastor of his church. Well when he wrote The Purpose Driven Life that was a book that sold a gazillion copies and instantly made him a, a multimillionaire. And Rick Warren did something very interesting. Rick Warren, at the moment at which that royalty came in and it was going to be big, went back to his church and he gave back every dime of every salary they had ever paid him up to that moment. And he told them, as long as you'll have me, I will take no more salary. And that was, again, what Rick Warren was able to do. I also respect Rick Warren because of this. Rick Warren chooses to live on 10% of his income and gives away 90 uh, you know, I think it's a, a, an amazing example. Let's face it, not all pastors have the ability to do that, and that's okay. But the point is that when we have a, 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 an opportunity to take advantage of something, to, to take something that's rightfully ours, we also have the opportunity to say, I don't need that. I know others do, and so I'm going to forego my privilege or my right of taking that and, and, and live on, and live on to the glory of God. And he's saying to us, we also have those opportunities at times. All right, number three. This is uh, the third instance in which uh, Paul says we can give up our rights. And we can do it if we don't want to place an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Paul, verse 12. Nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. And this is Paul's strongest argument. It's what everything else revolves around. It's what Paul cares the most about. 
And Paul's asserting that he didn't take a dime from the Corinthian church because he didn't want to be perceived as a pastor for hire. Now, interestingly, Paul did take some money from other churches, but for whatever reason, in Corinth, he said, there I'm not going to. And, and again, I would love to talk to Paul in heaven and find out what made, what made uh, Corinth different than Macedonia because he did take some money from the churches in Macedonia, and ironically, they were the poorer churches. So, you know, go figure. I would love to talk to Paul about that one day. If there's one thing that Paul cares about, it's spreading the gospel. That's what Paul lives for. That's what Paul wants everybody to live for. And in Paul's view of things, uh, here is spreading the gospel, and here is his personal rights. They are always subordinate to this upper and higher calling of saying, we've got to get the message out about Jesus. And so again, he's put his personal rights to rest underneath something that is the higher calling. Paul expands this in verse 16. I have it here for you on the screen. He says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And so he's saying, there's this calling, this burning that's in my belly. I've got to fulfill this. And so he says, I wouldn't put anything in the way of me fulfilling this primary calling. Here's the point I want to make with you. We all have to be aware of any right that we have that might get in the way of the spread of the gospel. Anything. That was the right thing that we can go do, but if it has an effect of diminishing the spread of the gospel, then we choose not to do that. We choose not to exercise that right. Let me try to make this as practical as I can, and I'd like to talk to you for a minute about retirement. In America, retirement is the thing that everybody lives for. In fact, retirement is viewed almost as nirvana in America today. And uh, it's, it's the time in life where it's at least perceived that we can do anything we want with our time. Finally, we're free. We're not belonging to the man anymore, so now we can go do whatever it is that we want. Perhaps an illustration would help. Pete was a man who attended a community prayer breakfast, and he sat at a table with a group of men that he didn't know. In the course of the conversation, the subject of retirement came up, and a man in the circle who appeared, well, in his mid-50s, was quite excited about the prospect of retirement. He said how much he was looking forward to his career being coming to a close, and he related a conversation he had had with his wife just that morning. My wife asked, what are you going to do when you retire, she said. He said to her, I'm going to sit on the couch and I'm going to watch TV all day long. The table fell silent. And Pete couldn't help but pipe up. And he said, you know if you do that, you'll die in a year. The guy looked at Pete with wide eyes and he said, why do you say that? Pete told him, the lack of purpose in your life will kill you unless your wife does it first. <laughs> and oh, how true. Your wife does not want you there day after day on the couch watching TV. There is a bigger purpose for you. Our lives are made for more than watching TV. Our lives are made for more than golf. Our lives are made more for, than, for more than travel. Our lives are made for more than RVing. Our lives are made for more for me of pickleball, which I would imagine in my retirement I might do some of. None of those things by themselves is wrong. 
But if they become the center of our lives, they can actually hinder the spread of the gospel. They can hinder the growth and development of the church. They can hinder the development of people around you that God wants to continue to use your life to benefit. And so we don't do anything, any personal freedom that we have. If it hinders the growth of the gospel, then we're saying, no, I won't use that freedom that I have, that opportunity that I have, that right that I have. And so we're very careful about looking at those rights and asking, what is the consequence of the use of some of those rights? Let me close here. Let me bring the plane in for a landing here. There's time at which we have the opportunity or the right to do something or not to do something. We get to say, no, I'm not going to use that right at this moment. Unlike the world, which takes whatever it can get, you have the freedom to say, no, at this time, I don't think I need that. I'm not going to use that. What are the instances? Well, when my authority is clear, it's self-evident, and I don't have to, uh, I can look overlook something because I don't have to let everybody know I'm in charge or they have to see it my way. When I don't need something that others may need, or by all means, I don't take advantage of any freedom if I know it's going to hinder the gospel. In a world that's clamoring to protect every individual right it can, Jesus calls us to give us ultimate freedom, to rise above that. And we do that because, well, He lives in us. And and His freedom is pulsing through our veins, which gives us the ability to have perspective on these things. Let me close with a story, and it's all the way back from my high school days. In my high school days, uh, one of the things, if you know me, you know that I really like is fly fishing. I, I think it's just very serene and it's beautiful, and I just, I love to fly fish on a good river or a good lake. Well, in my high school days, I had really not fly fished very much. I had a fly rod. I, I think maybe I even inherited it from my father, and, you know, it just was in the kind of the, the, the shed, and I knew it was there. Well, my best friend and I imagined that we would like to be into fly fishing, and so we were talking with one of our teachers, and he found out that we were at least talking about fly fishing. And he said, hey, you guys fly fish. And we, you know, we kind of spun a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you know, we fly fish. He's like, would you guys like to go with me? I'll take you. And we said, yeah, you know, we'd love to. I, I don't remember the professor's name, but I remember, or the teacher's name, but I remember where he took us. He took us to the Strawberry Valley in California. Doesn't it even sound iconic? We got there. We got out of the car. And uh, we got down to the river, you know, started putting our rods and everything together, and it became very clear to this teacher, these guys are newbies. They have no idea what they're doing. And, you know, he even saw by the first cast that this, like, this is a train wreck. You know, these guys do not know anything. At that moment, that teacher had a decision. I would find out later, actually, that he was a believer, too. But he, he, he faced a decision. And the decision was... In his mind, I'm taking these young guys fishing. They know what they're doing. I'm going to go off on part of the river. They're going to go off on part of the river, and we're going to meet back up, and I'll be good. Well, he finds out these guys don't know anything, so am I going to sacrifice my day and stay with them? And you know the decision that he made. He did. He stayed with us that day, and he taught us how to fly fish. Now, again, I would need a whole lot more instruction than that one day, believe me. But he made that decision that day. There are times when you can pass up certain rights. We can do this because we know Jesus 
lives within us. Let's pray. Lord, you have not asked us to do anything that you have not first done. You've done this through all of your time with humanity. Jesus has exemplified this better than any. And even Paul in the passage today is showing us what it's like to say, I don't need to demand every right that I have. I can give some of those up. Would you give us wisdom, Lord, today on how to exercise this? Would we we become a church that is kind, is generous? And part of that generosity is not demanding every right that we have. Lord, we want that demeanor as we deal with a world that's increasingly demanding every ounce of right that they have. We would love to be different. Rest upon us towards that end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.